and you may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 150. Psalm 150. As we prepare to read the psalm and then go through it, um, more or less verse by verse, this psalm is not for the frozen chosen. This psalm is not for those of you who think worship has to be completely solemn, quiet, never stepping out of bounds. I want you to read this psalm and appreciate that this psalm is describing a very lively time of worship where everything is expending all its energy in the worship and praise of the true and living God. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And let's join together. Praise the Lord. You catch the, the rhythm of that psalm? These sentences snap with rapid-fire uh, crescendoing pattern. And they, they wrap, we, we get wrapped up in these sentences, in the cadence, in the rhythm, and it just grows and grows until we reach the climax of this psalm where we praise the Lord. Everything that has breath praises the Lord. Yes, praise the Lord. Now, not every time of worship is like that. There are times when worship is solemn, when worship is where we, we may not be loud and, and wildly joyful, but we may be solemn, we may be sad, we may be contemplative and a little more inward. But not every worship needs to be that way either. This psalm, I am convinced, and, and many scholars and Old Testament scholars agree, this psalm was placed at the end of the book of Psalms on purpose. This is the psalm that ties everything together. This is the psalm that is, in a way, a great amen at the end of the book of Psalms. It's the psalm that is completely dedicated, end, beginning to end, to praising God to acknowledging the glory of God and, uh, and reflecting that glory back to him in everything, in every aspect. Just as the Psalms began with a psalm about the blessedness of the man who meditates in God's law, and the second psalm also uh, reflecting the first of the Messianic Psalms that is, is a major theme through the book of Psalms. So this psalm is the, is the capstone of the praise songs. It's the capstone of the praise songs, and it was intended to be the song that wraps it all up with a bow. 
Let's look in a little more detail at Psalm 150. Certainly not long, only six verses. Praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. Notice the first off, uh, we're used to seeing these words, the Lord in capitals. And of course, that's a traditional way we have rendered uh, the name of God, Jehovah. So we should actually read it, praise Jehovah. Praise God in his sanctuary, recognizing that the Lord is his name and God is his title. The Lord is his name and God is his title. That reminds us, he has a name. He has a name. He is a being. He is the perfection of being, the source of being. He has revealed his name to his people. And that is a cause of praise. Praise God in his sanctuary. Now, where, if you were living in Jerusalem, uh, where would his sanctuary be? Well, it would be in the tabernacle, or if you lived after the time of Solomon, it would be in the temple, wouldn't it? That would be his sanctuary. And in fact, the sanctuary refers usually to an inner the inner areas of the temple, not the outer courts, but the inner areas of the temple. And so it may be that this is specifically uh, pointed at the priests who conducted worship in the sanctuary, uh, but they did so uh, with the people. Uh, and in particular, some uh, there was a court in the, the temple called the Court of Israel, the court of Israel, uh, if you follow the architecture of the, of the temple, there's a, the outer court, which is the court of Gentiles. And Gentiles were allowed in that outer court. But then there's a, 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 a small guarding wall, about three, three and a half feet high, that separated the court of the Gentiles from the, what was called the court of women. The court of women was where they had the collection uh, uh, boxes for people to give their offerings. No Gentiles were allowed in there. No Gentiles were be allowed beyond that wall. Uh, but all of the people of Israel were allowed inside that wall. But then there's a, another court called the Court of Israel. Court of Israel was men only. Sorry, ladies. It was men only. And this is, probably, this is where we start to get into the sanctuary but in the court of Israel, then you have the actual building with the, with the holy place and the holy of holies. Court of Israel was where the sacrifices were, uh, were performed. The sanctuary was the holy of holies, where priests ministered day, day by day with the lighting of the candles, uh, the candelabra, the, the oil, and so forth, and the table of showbread and an altar of incense, which symbolized the prayers of the people. Then there was the Holy of Holies, which was only entered once a year on the Day of Atonement by one man, the high priest. And there were very strict regulations about the temple. So when the psalmist says, praise God in the sanctuary, he's probably pointing to those areas of the temple, which were either men only or the priests, and I tend to think it was the priests, because the sanctuary was often used to describe the holy of the holy place and the holy of holies, which was a, a building within the courts. Praise God in His sanctuary, the place where He is worshipped. 
praise him. The sanctuary is where he meets with his people. The sanctuary is where the glory of God manifests itself. Praise him in his sanctuary. But there's more. (laughs) But wait, there's more. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Well, this all of a sudden, now we're not earthbound. Now we're not to a building in the center of Jerusalem. Now we're praising God in the heavens. And it, it tells us that the praises of God offered here on earth by his people redound up into the heavens. It also reminds us that there is a whole realm that we do not see of creatures that we are taught about but do not see. And they, too, are praising God. On special occasions, God allowed people to see those creatures. One time was when his son came into the world. And these beings, these heavenly beings, appeared to shepherds. And what did they say? What did they say? They praised God. They praised God for what he was doing at that moment in the bringing of his son, and they directed the shepherds to find the young child and to worship. Praise him in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, whether on earth or whether in heaven. God is to be praised. His praise is universal. His praise is universal both on earth and in heaven. Praise him for his mighty deeds and praise him according to his excellent greatness. Verse 2, he is to be praised for his mighty deeds, the things that he has done. And he is to be praised for his excellent greatness, the majesty of his being, both in his essence as God and in his works as God, he is to be praised. And, and there, there runs through the Psalms this theme that we worship and praise God for who he is and what he has done. Who he is, the excellence of his nature, and what he has done, his mighty deeds of providence, his mighty deeds of creation, of providence, his deeds of salvation, his deeds even in answer to prayer. We should remember them and praise him. I mentioned after Matt's prayer, we have a lot to pray for, but we also have a lot to praise for, don't we? We have a lot to praise for. And even as we bring our prayers and petitions to the Lord, we should remember in prayer to praise him for answers and for protections and guidance and joy and salvation and creation and all of his manifold Blessings. We are to praise him for what he has done and who he is. Our speaker this summer at family camp made this connection. He does what he does because he is who he is. He does what he does because he is who he is. Praise him with trumpet sounds. Now we get to the orchestra. Did you know that there was an orchestra in the temple? There was a choir. The Levites, uh, many, and this choir could be as, as large as about 5,000 people, 5,000 Levites. And they also had an orchestra that played various instruments. Several of them are named here. Uh, they had tunes. They had music that they played. 
But can you imagine an orchestra com- uh, that was composed of trumpets, lutes, harps, tambourines, apparently some dancing, interpretive dancing, I'm sure, praising him with strings and pipes, praising him with cymbals and loud crashing cymbals. Again, this is not a worship service for the frozen chosen. This is a worship service full of energy, full of how the power of the, the, the praise of God. Have you ever considered, have you ever meditated on the role that music has in our lives, and particularly in worship? Music is an invention of God. My wife will be happy to explain to you how music is an area of applied mathematics. It's all built on relationships of sounds and timing and the vibrations. Did you know that the, a, the, the note A vibrates at 440 beats per second? If you go up an octave, it is twice that, 880 beats per second. You go down an octave, it's half that, 220 beats per second. Do you know that's where we get our whole concepts of melody and harmony, is those variations that can either create harmonies or dissonances, and those dissonances just reach into our minds and our hearts and cry out for a resolution. It's combined with words. It can be played on instruments. It could be uh, sung by people. Singing and musical performance requires the whole person to be engaged. Your muscles, even your skeleton, providing support. Your brain, your eyes, your ears, your lungs. All of that combined, your heart, your emotions, all of that is combined in the act of music And particularly that creation of God is intended for his creatures to reflect back his glory. Music is a creation of God. Music is part of that answer. Well, remember, we've we've been reading the Heidelberg, but remember question one of the Westminster Shorter. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Music combines those two things. When we sing praises to God, we are glorifying him and we are enjoying him because he creates what is beautiful. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, whatever is noble, whatever is honorable, and he also includes whatever is beautiful. Think on these things. We're doing that when we sing. We're doing that when we create music, well, when we perform music for the glory of God. It's very interesting that in ancient Israel, the the music was performed by the priests. As we come into the New Testament era, what happens, though? There's no temple. After 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. We also come to a time where Christianity is being spread throughout the world. People aren't worshiping at a temple anymore. The worshipers of God are meeting in houses and schools and buildings, and and eventually they start building their own buildings, but that didn't come till quite a, a, a little while later. Wherever they were, 
they sang music. Like I said, in the Old Testament, the priests seemed to be mainly responsible for the music, though people sang in their homes, and they sang psalms on their, on their journeys. They sang psalms in their homes. But as far as the formal worship of God in the temple, it was largely the province of the priests to do that. We emphasize something, and it, 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 it's hinted at in the Old Testament, but it is brought out in great clarity in the New Testament. The church, the people of the church, are saved so that we might be a royal priesthood. We are the ones now who offer that sacrifice of praise as part of the royal priesthood that God brings together in his church, we are the ones who offer the sacrifice of praise. Just a, a little history, too, in the history of the church. During the Middle Ages, the congregational singing died out in church. It was taken over by instruments, by professional choirs, by by, and, and beautiful music was written for the performance, but what was lost was the congregational singing in the Middle Ages. Until the time of the Reformation, guess what? A man named Martin Luther brought back congregational singing in Germany. A man named John Calvin, whom we usually do not associate with joyful activities, but he actually re rebuilt congregational singing in the Swiss Reformation. And by the way, there was a man in, in Geneva named Louis Bourgeois. Great name. Louis Bourgeois, I guess he was kind of middle-class bourgeois. Louis Bourgeois composed tunes for the Genevan Psalter. And you know what? He composed tunes for the Psalms based on dance tunes in France. Martin Luther adapted popular songs for, for singing. A Mighty Fortress is Our God was a well-known tune before Martin Luther adapted it for uh, A Mighty Fortress. Many of Louis Bourgeois' tunes were seen in the day as very lively. In fact, if we sing one sometime, you will notice this kind of rhythmic pattern, which suggests to you kind of a, 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 a Renaissance-era dance. You can almost picture the court in, in its very formal dancing and the rhythms of it and so forth. So much so that Gene the Genevan Psalter was criticized by other people who thought it should be much more serious. And they called Louis Bourgeois' tunes Genevan Jigs. If you ever hear the term Genevan Jigs, that's the story behind it. You would, you, but here's something that we don't think of. Calvin was fine with that. Calvin was fine with that. He had no problem with that. What his concern is that the people of God should be singing these songs, not professionals, not limited to uh, performers, but God's people should be the people singing the songs of Zion. And that's what it, where his concern was. We praise him for his mighty deeds. We praise him for his excellent greatness. Everything, musical praise, uh, brought together 
in service to the praise and worship of God. Praise him with tambourines, dance, praise him with strings, pipes, praise him with sounding cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Every culture develops different instruments, different types of instruments. If you go to Scotland, the pipes sound a little different than if you were in the Middle East. You ever heard Scottish bagpipes? Have you ever have you ever sensed those Scottish bagpipes have a certain very pronounced effect on you? Talk to a Scotsman about that. They were the pipes of war. They produce a martial sound, and they were the pipes that the Scots would listen to in preparation for battle. They stir the blood, believe me. But they also lift up the heart. Find at some time, if you can, a version of Amazing Grace played on the Scottish bagpipes. It will bring tears to your eyes. There's something in that power of music that speaks to the heart. Finally, let everything that has breath, whether it's breath with the trumpets and the pipes and, the, and so forth, or whether it's breath in singing, let everything, again, it closes with this thought of universal praise. Everything, every living creature, that goes beyond the realm of mankind, doesn't it? It goes beyond the realm of mankind. It includes all creatures, everything that has breath. Every creature that God created sings praise to its creator. From the robin who comes back in springtime, and we hear the song of the robin, he's singing praises to his creator. We have birds up in Big Bear called uh, jays. Uh, what's the? Skylar jays. They're, they're pretty big, actually. They're blues. They have the, the head uh, comb and, and so forth. They have a very raucous sound. Wow. But they're singing praise to their creator. We don't particularly like those critters that come in our backyard, those coyotes. But they, those coyotes sing at night. They're hunting. They're doing what they were created to do. And in doing that, they are singing praise to their creator. Our dog likes to guard our property from those coyotes. And occasionally he will rescue little animals from the coyotes. He's rescued little bunny rabbits and little kittens that were abandoned. He barks. But you know when he barks, he's doing what he was created to do. And in doing that, he is praising his creator. We were created to worship. We were created for fellowship with God. We were made in his image. God is the great author of music, and when we, his image bearers, make music and praise back to him, we are glorifying him. We are worshiping our creator. We use, as I said, we use every aspect of our being when we perform music, particularly in singing.
let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And that concludes the book of Psalms. I want you to leave this this evening with these thoughts that praise is universal. Praise encompasses all of our being. Praise encompasses all of creation. Praise is intended and invented for us by God so that we might reflect back to him the glory due his name. When these thoughts work their way into our minds and hearts, when we think about them and meditate on them and so forth, we, this, this, and this is one of the good reasons why we should study and sing the Psalms, it changes the way we think about reality. It changes our whole orientation to, the, to, the, to ourselves, to our families, to the world around us, and especially to God. There's a, a survey that came out just in the last couple of weeks about modern music in church. And it was a survey that compared contemporary music that's used in church with the Psalms. It's very interesting. The Psalms talk about social justice. I know we're conservatives, and as soon as somebody mentions social justice, our little flags fly up and, and red warning lights like. But the Psalms do talk about social justice. Do you know what? Contemporary worship songs hardly ever mention that. There's something about that. There's, there's something to think about that. The Psalms are predominantly God-centered. Even when D David is kind of in the dumps of bemoaning his current position, eventually in that Psalm you'll see the transition where he goes back to God. And he is, he is strengthened in his heart, in his mind, as he turns away from his current troubles and refocuses attention back on God. And the Psalms are predominantly God-centered. You know what? Contemporary music, though there are exceptions, but it's predominantly me-centered. It's about me. It's about my experience and my desires and me. Now, I'm not saying it has to, it, that me can't enter. It, it does in the book of Psalms, too. But again, predominantly, the book of Psalms is God-centered. You can find almost every theological doctrine in some place in the Psalms. And our contemporary music is woefully inadequate in teaching us good theology. It creates atmosphere. It creates a mood, especially if you're in a huge church with smoke machines and a big praise band and 10,000-watt amplification systems and so forth, and, you, you know, your hair is being blown back. And, and yeah, it can create a mood or an emotional response. But it doesn't teach very well. The Psalms teach really well. The Psalms cover every human emotion and put it in the context of our relationship with God. That's why we should sing and use and read and meditate on the Psalms. They are the first hymnal of the church. They were written over a period of time. David wrote most of them, but others contributed. They were edited. They were put together in five smaller books. There are five books of the Psalms. 
they were put in a certain order and they were grouped in certain ways and they begin with Psalm 1 and 2 for a purpose and they end with Psalm 150 for a purpose. Psalms lay out for us the covenant that God made with David. The Psalms rejoice in the faithfulness of God in his covenant grace and his covenant promises. The Psalms magnify the coming Messiah. The Psalms teach us about where we're destined to go. Psalms give us a vision of the majesty and glory of God, a vision that should transfix us and be the guiding light in our lives. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I can let you go now. Yeah, you said amen. Yeah, okay. Let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book in the Bible that you have given us. You have inspired it, and you have preserved it and handed it down to us through the centuries. And your church from the most ancient times has used this book in teaching and singing and worship, and it is indeed a blessing to your people. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in studying, reading, singing these songs of Zion. Let us rejoice in them and let, it, let them teach us to live God-centered lives. Let them teach us to have no fear of opening up ourselves to you. We cannot hide from you, but we often try to in our weakness, in our, in our distress— but we see a, a pattern in the Psalms that when one of your saints is in deep trouble, they express to you honestly their, what's in their hearts, and we should do the same. We pray, Father, for your blessing on this church. We pray, Father, that as our new pastor comes in the, in the next few days and will begin his work in this church, that he would find a praising church a church that loves to worship, a church that loves to sing, and sing with great joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, I got to tell you something else. So part of that survey was this, too. The Psalms argue with God. Now, that might sound odd, but read some of the Psalms of David. When he's in distress... He opens up before God. He says, God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I'm in trouble, God. Don't you see? Don't you care? That, and they put it in this article that David argues with God. Now, never disrespectfully. And there's always a resolution to that argument. But we, don't, we feel really strange about expressing ourselves that way sometimes, don't we? But it's part of being honest before God. You can't hide your heart in your heart from God. He knows the thoughts of your heart. Be honest with him about those thoughts. He can take it. He understands. His son has lived where you are and experienced everything that we have experienced, except in his own life, sin. But he's experienced the effects of sin in a fallen world. 
Well, let's conclude. I, I don't want to launch into a second part of the sermon here, but let's conclude with singing Psalm 150, version B, Psalm, 50, uh, Psalm 150B. And let's stand together. 